Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa. This is Taking Apart Terror. And you might recognise at least one of these voices. We cannot find a safe place to live. Please do something. We're going to look into it very Thank strongly. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you had the Nobel Prize. Yeah. That's incredible. But they gave it to you for what reason? In fact, the citation was for efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict. And the Nobel laureate and the other voice you heard was Nadia Murad, the young Yazidi woman standing in the Oval Office asking President Trump for help. Her family was slaughtered by Daesh and she was sold as a sex slave before she managed to escape. She has continued to work tirelessly to raise awareness, both of the plight of the Yazidi people and of all of those who suffer violent abuse during times of war. Women as victims of atrocities is a product of terrorism we're probably quite familiar with. But what about women as supporters of the men who commit those atrocities? Or women as fighters? Or counter-terrorists? Or policymakers? Or resistance forces? Or as we've called this edition, does terrorism have a gender? To most of us, the answer is probably, yeah, and it's obviously male. But women also have a role in Daesh activities, and in terrorism generally as well as in countering those activities or in raising awareness of their consequences, like Nadia Murad is doing. To explore and explain the roles of women on both sides of the conflict, I'm joined by three experts. Firstly, two of our regular panellists. Dr Joanna Cook is Associate Professor of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. Her book, A Woman's Place, looks at the role of women in US counterterrorism over the past 20 years. Hello, Joanna. Hi, nice to meet you. And we have Noreen Chowdhury-Fink. She's the director of the Sufan Centre in New York, and her research has also looked at the role of women both as fighters and opponents of terrorism. Hi, Noreen. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Adnan. Great to be here. And we have Devora Margolin. She's the director of strategic initiatives for the Programme on Extremism at George Washington University, and she's written extensively on the role of women within Daesh. Hello, Devora. Hi, thanks for having me. So Nuri, if I start with you, I think most people have got uh, an impression of how women are treated in a society run by Daesh, that they are, you know, the victims um, and they've got no status. Is that an oversimplification? No, I, I think that's fairly spot on until recently. The image of women, both in terms of, you know, operational actors, you know, in terms of law enforcement, security policymakers and the general public more broadly, I think has been that, you know, women are passive actors in, in the space of terrorism. And this is despite women having been active in, you know, several terrorist and armed groups in history. And I think the, the portrait everyone had of a terrorist was like a young, angry male. And so I think that has had serious operational consequences in terms of how people think about a threat. And also certainly in terms of the policy and operational responses where gender has really been, and, you know, to be frank, still is um, very much a new phenomenon. Devorah, from the outside, it looks like Daesh has got pretty clear roles for men and women. Is that right? I think when we talk about women's roles in the Islamic State, I divide it into three different kind of thought processes. First is how do groups conceptualize women's roles? 
And then how do women conceptualize women's roles? And then what are the reality of women's roles under the Islamic State? And I think there's a big difference between also women who live under the Islamic State and women who support the Islamic State from abroad. So if we're talking about how do groups conceptualize women's roles, we can look at leadership statements or propaganda. And we know that the group conceptualizes women's roles as in the private. We hear wives, mothers, but also educators of the future generation. If you're ever going into public life, it's supposed to be very modest. It's supposed to be devote. And if you're doing something in public life, it's supposed to be supporting the group. When you talk about women's conceptualization uh, of themselves, you can look at women's rhetoric online. You can look at videos. You can look at their arrest statements or what they've been arrested for. And we see this as much more complex. Women... Uh, You know, just like all individuals, men, women, we have different motivations and women see their roles differently in groups. Some see their roles as wives and mothers and some see their roles as fighters. But when we talk about the reality of women's lives under the Islamic State, you need to understand tying of the ideology to its governance. Um, And so we can look at descriptions of uh, victim testimonies are extremely important for understanding this, but also details of the Islamic State's bureaucracy. Joanna, Daesh were trying to create a particular kind of society, weren't they? And, and they saw women as part of that process. ISIS really was a state-building project. And you think about uh, the kind of roles that any state would have, healthcare, education, uh, law enforcement. Their ideology meant that that was gender segregated. So you would have women engaging with women for things like healthcare, women engaging with women and children for Um, education. Uh, And then for things like law enforcement in particular, you would have, again, like the Hezbollah or the female uh, morality police that would go around and police other women. And so while women did generally have some of these broader roles, the the primary role that was emphasized for women under Islamic State was in the domestic sphere. So really being the wives of jihadist husbands, raising the next generation of so-called cubs. And I think when you only focus on you know, who are often the men on the front lines holding the guns, you really miss the bigger picture. You miss the support networks, you miss the ideology and how the ideology travels, you miss how intergenerationally things like recruitment and uh, mobilization of these ideas and, and these actors really comes into play. So only thinking about the men involved here is a mistake if we're trying to understand what's actually going on. But Noreen, as far as the women are concerned, do they want to be there? And is it good for them? One big important thing to remember is that these are very diverse roles and very diverse impacts. I mean, most of the policy documents I've seen from international actors still talk about the role of women as if there is a singular group of women that, you know, sort of moves as one. We have to remember these are individuals with motivations. The motivations will and sometimes look exactly the same as young men's, just it may materialize differently, but it's the same you know, the same dynamic that it's affecting them, whether it's empowerment, whether it's religious ideology, whether it is kinship network or, you know, the coolness factor, whatever it is. Um, is it good for them? I mean, I, to my mind, no, but that's me and I'm not there. I think there will be some women who say they, they wish that the utopian caliphate had worked out more and had it worked out better, it would have been good for them. I think if you're a young Yazidi girl, it's it's not so good for you. And I think we have to constantly remember that there are different women and, and different impacts and different motivations. I also just wanted to add that, you know, we've talked quite a bit about gender as if it's just about women. Even though ISIS certainly surpassed Al-Qaeda in reaching out to women and, and creating a space where they were mobilized, 
when ISIS tells young men, you know, come out there, be a real man. It's cool to come out and fight, you know, fulfill your manly duties. You know, if you're a better fighter, if you're a Western fighter, you'll get this many sex slaves. They're appealing to very gendered notions of what it means to be a man. So a lot of women will be homemaking and child rearing, but some of them will be fighting. Does Daesh approve of that? The rhetoric and the propaganda that the group is spouting is very gendered. And the articles that are aimed to women are much more about homemaking, and they're not necessarily emphasizing fighting. That being said, there is a doctrine which the Islamic State follows, which basically comes from a man named Abdullah Azam, which basically says when Muslim land is under attack, it becomes an individual duty for all, a child without the permission of their parents and a wife without the permission of her husband. And so there's this concept of offensive and defensive jihad. When you control Muslim lands and those Muslim lands are under attack, it becomes defensive jihad. And so the Islamic State and its predecessors argued that they were in a state of defensive jihad. And so we saw, for example, uh, the Islamic State predecessor, al-Qaeda in Iraq, using female suicide bombers. The declaration of the caliphate changed everything for the Islamic State. Defensive jihad no longer existed, and all of a sudden the group was claiming they were doing offensive jihad. They weren't just a state, they were a caliphate. And so women were pushed back into private roles, specifically in combat. But as we get towards 2016, coalition forces are bombarding the Islamic State, the state's becoming weaker, that the rhetoric really starts to change. And we see this emphasis on maybe that defensive jihad is coming. And this is a big actual academic debate that we have. The debate hasn't fully been solved, but we do know that there was several women who took part in the last stand of Baguz. And so, you know, this is something that we continue to track. And it's important to understand this rhetoric because we want to know if the Islamic State or other groups claim that defensive jihad is there. That means that we will see women participate. And we know there were women from all over the world who responded to the Daesh call to action. How are they seen? I think when we talk about women who want to be there, women who are motivated, who have perhaps traveled from abroad to join the group, many of these women are motivated by the ideology of the group, but don't necessarily live under its control. And so we see women such as the three women in Kenya who carried out a suicide bombing in 2016, or Tafshin Malik who carried out an attack in San Bernardino in 2015, who carry out these attacks in the name of the Islamic State. The Islamic State will never condemn these women. They'll praise them. They'll say, look, these women fought even when they didn't have to. But it's not mandatory on women at that time. What is important to highlight as well is that uh, not only do you see uh, women who were inspired by the organization, you've got individuals like Safa Bular uh, in the UK who was uh, charged with terrorism offenses. We've had a number of uh, female attacks conducted by women in places like Indonesia as well. And so we do see individuals who are either individually inspired by the organization and act independent of them. We have seen some of these attacks perpetrated uh, where some of the perpetrators have had uh, a link to somebody in Iraq and Syria. And then we've seen those in Iraq and Syria who have actually uh, lived under uh, Daesh. And so, uh, for example, in 2017, um, when forces were taking back the city of Mosul, we saw ISIS deploy dozens of female suicide bombers as well. And Joanna, I know there's something called the Peshmerga, the, you know, the Peshmerga forces. They're mainly Kurdish militias who are trying to battle Daesh. Are women active in those as well? Since Daesh has established itself in Iraq and Syria, there have been 
local forces that have been fighting against it. And the, the Kurds have been at the forefront of this. And what we have seen uh, with Kurdish forces as well is that uh, we have a female Peshmerga forces as well. So we've seen women uh, on the front line battling Daesh. And the, the battle to recapture Mosul really kind of encapsulated the, the diversity of roles that women were playing in this. We saw women on the front lines on both sides, both uh, being deployed as suicide bombers, but also uh, really battling to, to reclaim this territory. Resistance against the invasion and occupation came in many forms, including from ordinary civilians, risking their lives to try and stop the reign of terror. And because Daesh didn't see women as any kind of credible threat, they often went under the radar. In 2014, Daesh slaughtered its way through Saddam Hussein's hometown of Tikrit, murdering over 1,700 Iraqi army recruits. The survivors ran, but found themselves cut off, trapped on the banks of a river across from the town of Al-Alam. Bravely, the people of the town got rowing boats and ferried the soldiers across, while their comrades provided cover from the bushes. One of those who helped in the rescue, and then at huge personal risk to herself and her family, sheltered many of the soldiers in her home, was Alia Khalaf al-Jabouri, now better known as Umm Qusay. Her husband and eldest son had been killed by Daesh two years earlier, and she was living in Al-Alam with her remaining children. A poor widow, mother and grandmother, who seemed very ordinary, but was about to show how extraordinary she is. <laughs> They would bring to me, for example, seven or ten people, depending on the circumstances. They would change their clothes, eat and drink. And in the afternoon, I would take them to Kirkuk, by car with my daughters, because at first, Daesh did not stop vehicles transporting niqab-wearing women. Finally, seven of the men were left in the village of Hajjaj, which is 40 kilometers away from us. One of them was a friend of my son, Khaled. He phoned my son and told him that Daesh had started entering homes, slaughtering everyone they found there. He said that they had gone down to the riverbank and for three days they were eating grass with no food or water. Khaled came to me and said, Mom, this is what is happening. So I told him, take your sister and go. Your sister is not better than the young people whom you will bring back. Take her and go. Um Kuse sent two of her sons, Halid and Rafid, and her daughter to fetch the men. While they were gone, she got a message saying that her two sons had been killed. But thankfully it turned out not to be the case. And finally they returned safely, bringing the soldiers. They stayed with me for 17 days, and all the time the fighting was going on around us, as I was sheltering them, sitting in the living room of my house. Even though I couldn't have done anything if Daesh came to the house, I knew deep down that if I could not protect them, I would die before them. I mean I would rather die than let the intruders in. Of course, I was not the only one who hit soldiers. Everyone in Al-Alam did. IS began searching for whoever came from the south and slaughtered them and their host families. Where should I take them? I went to a professor named Abdul Haq and said to him, I have seven soldiers left and I don't know what to do. 
I want you to make fake IDs for them. He said, leave it to me, mama. Once she'd secured IDs for the seven soldiers, it was time to smuggle them out. I rented the Hyundai Starks and put in it my murdered son's two teenage daughters, my own daughters, my luggage, as well as my sister-in-law. We all got into the car to conceal them so that when Daesh stopped us at checkpoints, they would see only women. I put the men in the middle and girls sat around them on both sides. At every Daesh checkpoint, the driver and I raised our hands and said, May you be victorious with God's blessings make them think that we were supporting them, and to let us pass. Then we reached the Pashmerga roadblock in Kirkuk. The Pashmerga fighter took the identification of one of the smuggled soldiers and asked him about his name. The soldier did not remember his fake name. The Pashmerga fighter said, you have fabricated your papers and you need to get out of the car. Then I had no choice but to bang my head against the car door with force so that my head would split open. Blood flowed and trickled down my face immediately, and the girls started shouting, Our mother has died, our mother has died. The fighter who was Kurdish asked, What is wrong with your mother? They said, She is diabetic and her blood sugar has spiked and we have brought her to Kirkuk for this reason, but you are stopping us from proceeding. He said, You are such a liar and you will be caught in Kirkuk. He threw the identification at us and we passed. So Joanna, your book, A Woman's Place, was the research you did for that inspired by the fact that women are overlooked when it comes to this kind of conflict? Throughout history, women have had roles in terrorist organizations as leaders, fighters, as fundraisers, recruiters, you know, any role that you can uh, associate with a terrorist organization, a woman has likely held that at some point. What was really different with um, ISIS in particular, though, was that women came to the forefront in ways that were visible as never before. So we saw women from Canada, from the U.S., from uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, all over the world going and joining this organization. And so what my research was really trying to do uh, is look at not only uh, the roles that women have played uh, within ISIS, but also on the flip side, women's roles in countering these organizations. The question uh, was really kind of prompted by the idea of what is a woman's place in relation to, to terrorism and counterterrorism, because it has been such a, a gap in policy and practice, and uh, we would say in research, but in fact we can demonstrate that there has been quite a bit of focus on it, even if that research itself hasn't gained a lot of attention. Noreen, are women involved in counterterrorism? And if they're not, why not? And should they be? In many countries, you won't find women in senior military or operational roles. It's not very diverse when you look at who is thinking about counterterrorism and who is delivering counterterrorism. And certainly when I've talked to, whether it's intelligence agencies or law enforcement or, or border security forces, you know, and I ask them, do you think about gender? Do you, do you think about the roles of women? They're not thinking about them either as a perpetrator to guard against or as a victim to protect or as an ally in prevention. I'll give you a snapshot. I was sitting in a country um, in a room full of intelligence, police, and military officers, and I was asking about gender in how they deal with, you know, returnees from the conflict zone. And I said, you know, well, well what do you do with the women that come back? And they looked at me and said, well, nothing. I mean, they go home to their towns. 
And I said, but do you do any kind of risk analysis? Do you, you know, do you check up? Because as we've all talked about, sometimes it could have been the women themselves that were the, the prime driver for radicalization, right? And they looked at me and they said, but why would we do that? It's not like women ever want to go. And it's not like, you know, when they come back, they would do anything because women always want peace and mothers always want peace. In that story, you can see a very real, you know, set of assumptions that were affecting operational responses. And in fact, of course, they looked at me like I was crazy for even asking this question. So I don't know if having more women necessarily will lead to better counterterrorism. I think all indications are yes. We certainly would have, I think, a more accurate picture of what's going on and a greater set of instruments in the counterterrorism toolkit if we had more women at the decision-making table. Devora, do you agree? It is important to have women in the room, but it's not, we, we call it add women and stir. So don't just have women in the room, but give them agency to be part of the conversation is extremely important. If a woman is in the room and she's not part of the conversation or engaged in the conversation or able to advocate for what counterterrorism should look like. So, you know, there was a lot of criticism for some uh, countering violent extremism programs that basically were saying mothers, as mothers, should be in charge of ratting out their children or telling the government if they're worried about their children without understanding the implications of that and understanding the implications of breaking down family boundaries or values. Um, and so women need to be part of the conversation as both victims, perpetrators, and those who are caught up in the system. I wanted to ask about those camps in northern Syria. There's talk of women getting together, mobilising. Joanna, is this something we should be paying more attention to? When we look at a place like El Hol camp in northeast Syria right now, for example, there's about 60,000 residents still there, of which 10,000 are foreigners, of which 3,000 are foreign women, uh, and then alongside 7,000 of their often very young children who are now facing extremely dangerous and dire circumstances. They're not charged with any offenses. They have not been held accountable for their actions. They have not faced trial. They have not uh, gone through de-radicalization programming. And for those uh, that have been victimized, there has not been adequate support. The longer these populations stay there, there is a swath of undesirable options for these populations going forward. And so whether it's having them escape, uh, whether it is having some of them potentially radicalize their children, there have been a number of murders already in a whole camp, for example, this year. And so even facing dangers within the camp, Governments do need to step up, take care of their populations, repatriate them, and really manage them at home in a way that is controlled by those governments and done in the most uh, safe and efficient way for those societies as well. Tavora, do you, do you want to jump in on uh, the, the camps? You know, are we, is there a problem coming? So the Syrian Democratic Forces are a mostly Kurdish militia group, uh, which work alongside uh, often coalition forces. Um, and are running many of the camps in Syria at the moment. The SDF arrested two women for being part of uh, the Hezbollah or the morality police and operating within a whole camp, which means that there's still the ideology and the, the mechanisms in place to women policing other women and making sure that they're adhering to the ideology of the group. The rhetoric of the Islamic State organization has said women are there to help carry on that ideology. And in fact, we are in such a dire space right now that that job is more important than ever. And that's not to say when we're talking about women in all whole, you have a wide variety of women. So you have many women who were victimized by the Islamic State who are in these camps with women who perpetrated these crimes. 
And on the other end of the spectrum, you have many women who've completely given it up, dressed in Western ways now, have left and seen the cruelty of the group. And that doesn't mean that, you know, it's not an apology for the fact that they perhaps chose to join this group. But we have to understand and disaggregate that there's just a really wide spectrum of women who are in Al Hol at the moment. I just wanted to comment on one question on accountability as well, and I think it's one we don't really talk enough about, and that is crimes perpetrated against women by Daesh and others are prosecuted less. And I think that I find is a very, um, very dangerous signal to send that crimes against women don't matter as much. For example, there is a Security Council mechanism at the UN by which countries could sanction individuals who have, you know, trafficked in human beings and, and, and sold little girls or boys, um, to finance terrorism. And, and it would be a fairly simple designation mechanism to put sanctions on an individual. Not a single designation has been put forward by any Security Council member in, in the last few years. And so I think those are very important dimensions when we talk about gender, that crimes against women, crimes involving little girls have somehow been seen as not as worthy of, you know, swift accountability. And I think that really matters, too, when we when we think about what uh, what gendered roles are and, and how people are, are being held accountable for for Daesh's crimes. Um Kusi had managed to get the Iraqi soldiers to safety, but things were far from over. As soon as she had delivered them, she immediately had to think about saving her own life. Daesh members then came dragging the professor who had forged the IDs for me down the street. They wanted to decapitate him. They demanded to know about the woman he had forged the IDs for so they could slaughter her. His brother escaped from them called me and said, you have to go, Daesh know you, and they will come for you. We left everything and fled. My family and I were 25 people, 14 hours running without shoes. We did not carry anything except the clothes we were wearing, and we did not have even 1,000 Iraqi dinars in our pockets. During the horrific fighting around Al-Alam, Umm Qusay sheltered 64 of the 400 Iraqi soldiers saved by the townspeople, helping them find safe passage out of there. She was risking her life every step of the way. Umm Qusay and her family escaped to Samara and stayed there for six months. Umm Qusay suffered terrible personal loss at Daesh's hands. Not only had they killed her husband and son, some of her other children were badly injured and left severely disabled. She continues to be a symbol of strength and resilience in Iraq and has received several honours, including in 2018 an International Women of Courage Award. One of the things that makes Umm Qusay's actions so inspiring is that she and most of Al-Alam are Sunni Muslims and the soldiers that they were saving were Shias. She didn't hesitate to risk her life and her children's lives for strangers from another sect. It was a message of unity she continued to send. I visited every area in Iraq. I visited all provinces. I feel like God turned me into a cloud and I reigned over sectarianism to put its fire out. I kept assisting security forces 
until security spread and we eliminated Dash. Thank God the situation has returned to normal and it is now even better. As for women, my perspective towards them has changed compared to the past. They used to say that women make up half of society. Now, I only say one thing. Women do not comprise half of society. They are all of it. Women make up the entirety of society. One of the things that's become really obvious from this discussion is that we need to think more about the role of women in terrorism and counterterrorism. And you're involved in, you know, gathering information, you know, doing the research on this. Joanna, can you give us a final thought on the work that you've done on this? In the book, I reviewed over 500 U.S. government documents between 2000 and uh, 2019. One of the things that I was looking for in there is what were the justifications used, particularly for counterterrorism programs? So why why should you include women? And so the first was operation and innovation. So if you're in a police unit, if you're in a military unit, an intelligence unit, and you have access to female operatives, all of a sudden you can go out and talk to women in the community in areas where that that might be uh, less effective for men or out of bounds for men to do. The second is a, is one that talks about women's rights. In, in many of these countries, uh, you know, a woman has a right to participate in society equal to to any other citizen. Women are the most impacted by terrorist violence in many cases, so it's her right to be part of the solution. And the the third justification was just women are half the population. Again, having those kind of uh, views present at the table, those experiences, those skills, uh, very similar to other fields in our societies, the more you have a a broader representation of of all parts of that society, the more um, robust I think those practices become. And whether you're looking at far left groups, far right groups, whether you're looking at ethno-nationalist terrorist organizations, these same principles generally still apply. Devorah, you and Joanna are writing something together, is that right? We're looking at 50 years of women's participation in terrorism from uh, far left, far right, ethno-nationalists and religious terrorism. I think it's going to be pretty groundbreaking because the last kind of review of women in terrorism was from about 2012. And they had only looked at about 60 articles um, and we've collected over 600 cases of academic research articles into this topic It's been a huge jump in this field, and there's a lot of individuals, both men and women, who are involved and bringing attention to the importance of taking a gendered lens to look at this um, and not just looking at men. Noreen, um, there's one thing that keeps coming into my head about this, and that's when it comes to women and terrorism, it is complicated. I think if that's the key takeaway from today, that is a huge victory. If someone adds an S to the question about the role of women, I think that is already a a lot of headway. As Joanna and Deborah said, there's great research about the different roles of women. It's just you also need people to ask for it and look for it. Because for so long, we've oversimplified this conversation. I'd like to thank Joanna Cook, Devorah Marglin and Noreen Chowdhury-Fink for bringing so much extra insight into what was, for me at least, a very two-dimensional understanding of the roles women play in all aspects of terrorism. And I'd like to thank Um Kuse for sharing her story. If you'd like to find out more, Joanna's book is called A Woman's Place, 
and is available from Hearst Publishers and Oxford University Press. Devorah and Joanna's paper is called Five Decades of Research on Women and Terrorism and it comes out later in 2021. That's it for this edition of Taking Apart Terror. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode, including our next one, which is called Is Anyone Doing Anything About This? Where we'll be looking further at counter-terrorism and what the world is trying to do to stop Daesh and other groups. Finally, if you're enjoying the series, please do go and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people to find us. And we want to know what you think. I'm Adnan Sawa. Until the next time, goodbye.